Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 182nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's invading Europe like it's 1944. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I am your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James. Nice and humid out here on this side of the lake as we uh, approach the surprisingly quick end of summer here. I, I am squarely posted up in my air-conditioned ivory tower, staring at a bowl of gourmet chips that I can't eat because now we're podcasting. Gourmet chips, like potato chips? It's a Miss Vicky's limited edition run of citrus and black peppercorn. They are delicious and they're staring at me i will take your word for it i'm not a potato chip i'm a sweets person more than a salty person oh i'm completely on board with that (laughs) constant debate with Alitza about which is better um obviously it's sweet but these are pretty good okay yeah i can go for a good potato chip um i just can't believe how fast summer has gone like I feel like we yeah. had our beginning of summer housewarming party like two weekends ago, but it was actually like three months ago. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> and what? How far far back though does War of the Spark feel? So as much as summer has compressed, Magic has had so much go on, especially in NTG Finance in 2019, that we're only two thirds of the way through, and I just feel like we've lived through three years in the space of nine months. Yeah, War of the Spark was the spring set, wasn't it? Yep, May. Yeah, that feels a lot a further long, away long than it was. <laughs> magic has a tendency to do that, where like you, I feel like magic sets have strange temporal, cause strange temporal sensations, where sometimes you're like, wow, it's only been two months since I've seen that. Like, I feel like that just came out. And then other times it's, you know, it kind of goes both directions for me. Well, like, I went to look at what was rotating, like, checking out standard decks and figuring out what was still going to be around. Yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, all this, I mean, Arclight Phoenix is rotating, so, and then I was like, wait, no, it's not, that just came out last fall. <laughs> Arclight Phoenix isn't even a year old. What set is, what sets are rotating? Is this all the Ravnica stuff? Uh, no, because that's from last fall. That, that was my instinct as well, but that just came out last October. Oh. Um, and then we had three Ravnica sets culminating in War of the Spark, MH1. Magic 2020 and the Commander sets this month. So, so what's rotating? Uh, Dominaria and Ixalan. Oh, Ixalan is and, still in standard. Yeah. Now, see, that's the other end of it, where it's like, wait, Ixalan is still in standard? That feels like it's been around <laughs> forever. Like, yeah. those well, dinosaurs are still here? Because we're, we're, we're back on the two-year rotation schedule. But, I mean, it feels like it would have rotated already. Like, it's, it's weird, like, oh, that's still here? That feels so long ago. The thing about Standard is that I think as a player, especially if you're you're not super into it, and I'm very lukewarm on Standard these days, um, once you're bored of a format, like, you feel like it's more or less been solved and it's relatively stable, you stop paying attention. And the funny thing is, Standard hasn't really been like that this year. Like, compared to something like, you know, Devotion Theros um, period, where it was all mono-blue, mono-black decks, um, this has been a much more diverse year, and yet I'm still bored relatively easily. I think it's the problem 
systemic in the, in the current, you know, soundbite culture, everything consumed so quickly and spat back out. Well, I mean, if you're not in the store playing regularly, or if you're not on arena playing regularly, I just don't think it's going to hold your attention because it feels so far removed. And and I think that the finance angle there is that <laughs> the more the the more that attention spans are shortened on formats and decks and cards and interactions, the more churn you're going to see people buying and selling cards. Yeah. It's hard it's see it's hard for me to speak to this because it seems like it's a challenge for you and I to disconnect our personal feelings regarding this from the greater trends. You and I could be like, oh, standard, whatever. I don't care. These decks aren't interesting. Dying blah, blah 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 blah. But like I, I don't know if everyone feels that way. Sure. And I think it, you know, it's just very easy for me to get like, oh, yeah, who cares anymore? But there's like a bunch of 17-year-olds out there who are super into all this and are super jazzed every weekend that keep up with all of it. Yeah. And as I said, it's been a dynamic standard. So, I mean, there's, there's hot new deck. There's the Kethis combo deck with Mox Amber. It's putting Mox Amber back on the ro- radar right before it rotates. Mm-hmm. And But I still think it's interesting to think about like what magic would have been like pre-internet. If the dawn of the internet and the dawn of Magic the Gathering had not coincided, if Magic had launched like in the early 80s alongside shortly after Dungeons and Dragons, it would be interesting. I think that decks and formats would have lasted a lot longer. Well, you had like... Because... Go ahead. Sorry. Get, sorry. Get, without interference from scheduling on the, on the corporation's behalf. I think if you go back to something like 50s and 60s culture, you could, you could predictably... It's possible that decks would have lasted years if there was no interference. Because there, there would have been such a uh, lower velocity of information about the meta and through the meta that even if somebody solved the format, that might have been local to New Hampshire. <laughs> and in California, they may not have even heard of it. Well, you you had something of that na- effect right at the start, right? Because, I mean, obviously the internet and magic did begin around the same time. But for the most part, that content wasn't widely available until the late 90s, early 2000s. But you people used us, what was it, Scry magazine all the time. Like that was the the medium of information for a majority of people. Yeah, Scry and Inquest. Yeah. So and, like you and still the, had the information the out there. It was magic, just slower. A lot of Magic players today probably don't even know that Magic had an official magazine for a while called The Duelist. Right. Scry, um, Inquest, and The Duelist. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving right along. What? Uh, Wait. Let's see here. Wait. I'm not done yet. Okay. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. That was not low effort. I don't want to hear about it being low effort. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I'm not done yet either. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering, single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. What is on the agenda this week? Uh, well, this week it's mid-August, which means we don't have a lot on the agenda because there's not a lot in Magic. Um, segment one, our top movers will look at the cards that have moved the most in price this week. Segment two, our cards to watch will run through the cards that we think have pretty good outlooks. Segment three, our metagame week in review, we can look at uh, GP Birmingham, which is... 
The last modern event before GP Vegas, which is this weekend, which will also be totally irrelevant because everything is getting a hard reset in six days. Uh, and I think we're, for segment four, our topic of the week, we'll probably do a little bit of a mailbag here unless something strikes us uh, in the hour leading up to that, um, because this time of the year is just a little slower than the rest. So let's get started here. Subject one, our top movers. First card of the week, Warp Bogger Auntie, uh, foils out of Lorwyn. About a double up here from seven and change to around 15. Black Red Goblins has been kind of poking its head around the fringes of modern uh, after the M20 release, and we got some new tools there. But nothing uh, nothing too thrilling here. I mean, it's a Lorwyn foil, so it's old. Uh, but I don't think... She's like a four of at any of these strategies, right? She's not like a key component. I think we said a couple weeks ago she was a two or a three of in Black Red Goblins. Yeah, sounds about right. So moving on, we've got Flamekin Harbinger out of Lorwyn, another Lorwyn foil. 13 to in theory 30, and I wouldn't be surprised if you could get 20 to 25 for these. Elementals have been piquing people's interest in both modern and EDH um, through spring and summer. Um, Risen Reef, uh, no small part of that. And there's also a new Omnath in Teamer Colors for Commander um, that pulls a bunch of the good elementals together. Uh, and Harbinger being a tutor for that tribe means that it hasn't seen a reprint and isn't likely to see one anytime soon means that those foils will probably hold for a while. I agree. Uh, you know, until you see another foil, anyone who wants to play any sort of elemental deck is going to be going to pick up Flamekin, Har- Flamekin Harbinger. So... Uh, not a not a, a heavy stream of demand, but a consistent one. Or at um, least, a, yeah, a, could be growing, but, you know, from low modest to low medium. Yeah. But the fact that it's such a low priority reprint foil that you're never going to see as a judge promo or whatever um, means that it's got a lot of revenue. Yeah, you're only going to get caught out on this if they do, you know, UMA 2 or whatever and decide that there needs to be like uh, an elemental theme in the draft someplace and that flamekin harbinger is appropriate for the draft strategy like that's kind of how you get got on these um just it happens to fill a hole that wizards needs filled in a, some other particular strategy i could see uh, like a modern masters 2022 20, 23 with risen reef build around for elementals well if they push elementals in m20 i wouldn't be surprised to see them do a UMA or some or or even the next another Modern Horizons next year or something that adds some more elementals to the mix, right? Like you get your standard elementals, then you get one or two in Modern Horizons one, and then another small elemental sub theme in Modern Horizons two to continue to shore up that archetype. Yep, totally possible. Uh, Echo Tracer foils from Legion. This is another morph card. Uh, it does stuff with morph. I don't know, two to five dollars, four fifty for foils. Um, I think this is kind of a stretch. I mean, I'm sure you can get four or five bucks for it. Probably not much more than that. Uh, the morph deck has generally been relatively unpopular. Uh, if you're keeping track on EDA track, it is way behind the other uh, major archetypes. Atlas leading the pack. Uh, even you know, Madness is more popular. Uh, Kaikar, you know, that Jeskai commander, not even from the, from commander 2019, but that's been more popular. Uh, so, so Morph is having a little bit of trouble out of this year's set. Um, so I don't think you're going to see a lot of people flocking to buy your foil echo tracers, but given that supply is likely to be extraordinarily low, if you've got a couple of these, I, you can probably get away with them, get away selling them. 
Yeah, I mean, given where what the popularity for that deck is looking like, my strategy for pulling the few like more foils you probably had lying around in your collection and getting rid of them is to bundle them on on eBay or on Facebook <clears throat> and offer them up for like twenty five or thirty percent below whatever current market is on those foils. Unload the five or six you've got, clear twenty, thirty, forty bucks, and roll. Yeah, I could see that. <clears throat> All right. So next on our list, we've got. Uh, Soulscar Mage out of Amonkhet foils from six to sixteen, uh, frequently showing up in I believe mono red Phoenix lists, right? Uh, yes, yes, it's sort of that like pro- red prowess deck. Yeah, and that's it's always a four of in that deck because if you are looking to get busy with prowess creatures, you're going to be running four of these and four Monastery Swift Spear for the most part. Soulscar Mage. I feel like one of us picked this. At some point, so let's see. Oh, I picked Monastery Swift Spear on one seventy nine. Someone had to have mentioned Soulscar, didn't they? You are all going to sit there while I look through weeks I'll, and weeks of episodes. The other card in this deck that's interesting, of course, is Arclight Phoenix, which we've talked about in the past. And Bedlam Reveler foils have been a pick on this cast at some point. I think Manamorphose has as well. Lava Spike Foils, I think we called once they were announced for Inclusion Modern. I got an offer on four foil Japanese uh, Lava Darts the other day that I picked up in Europe at six piece for a hundred and turned them down flat. Wow. Because the English foils from Judgment are going for 30. So that's like a $120 playset. So the Japanese has got to be somewhere between 120 and 200. Yeah, that's... It may be a little optimistic, but I, I like the ambition. <laughs> the thing is, that if I have to wait a couple extra months to get an extra $40, so be it. That ROI will be just fine. Sure. Um, I couldn't find anyone having picked Soulscar Demon, but I am positive, or Soulscar Mage, but I am positive I have looked at that card a couple times. It's an I uncommon, just... right? No, I don't think so. Now you got to make yeah. me go look. Soulscar Mage. Uncommon is is a rare for mom and cat oh okay well that makes that makes the foils uh less surprising at 16 yeah but i mean tcg players still showing a market of like five and change so someone made took a shot at this and let's see it's not a card i remember mtg finance anybody in mtg finance that generates content having called out any time recently so i suspect that a lot of that drain was natural demand yeah it could be it could be i know I'm, i think the supply was kind of heavy um so maybe we got down to like 20 ish vendors like naturally drained to 20 or 30 vendors and then somebody picked up the last couple i don't know mm-hmm. i don't i don't have a, a supply history in front of me so it's hard to say next on the list mycosynth golem out of fifth dawn this is the uh weird 11 casting cost artifact that has affinity for artifacts and gives all of your artifact creatures affinity for artifacts um foils in theory going from 20 to 60 you had this marked down as yo-yo like the price yo-yos all the time oh okay like it it shows that we've we've definitely had this on the list a couple times jumps up to some crazy number someone relists or no the price creeps down to the 30 again and it sells and then it jumps back up again just does it all the time. It's a mirrored in a fifth dawn foil, so there's like no copies left. And there's just a ton of is it related 
commanders that can run this thing. Bosch, Karn, Silver Golem, Traxos, Muzio, Memnark, Slobad, Padim, Sharum, Sah- various forms of Sahili, Arkham Dagson, Psy Master Thopterus, Joyro, Weatherlight Captain, like Doretti, Scraps of On. It's very, I, very deep. <laughs> I was well, going to give you credit for naming all those off the top of your head, but you went deep enough that i realized you were reading from the edh rec page rather oh. than just doing it off the top of your head you got about yeah, four sure. or five in i'm like wow he's got those ready to go <laughs> well i mean i do play the genre so i do know most of these off the top because they're they're either a commander i have built or i have the card in the deck um because i have i've had brea built for a while um and all of this stuff slots right in there well i i i know all the card i know when you say them i know all the cards too but i would not have pulled slow bad out of midair no, I, I don't think I would have either. And frankly, I, I think I forgot Mozio existed as well. <laughs> um, Mischievous Quainar out of Scourge. Non-foils, a dollar and change, up to five bucks. Also another morph card, uh, a decent one. Because um, it's non-foils, so the foils, I'm sure, are are probably 30 bucks or something like that, if you can ever get rid of them. Yeah. Um, then we got Vizier of Tumbling Sands out of Amonkhet. Uh, foils from a dollar fifty to seven. This is on the back of the Twiddle deck that's been taking magic memes by storm over the last week or so. Um, I think it was played by Seth on Against the Odds, maybe, or some other goldfish content. And some other players have been fooling around with it on stream. And the deck is like, you know, it's, it's no tier one deck, but it's a lot better than it looks at first glance, given that it has a bunch of Twiddle effects and is using Splice under Arcane for the first time in years and years. Yeah, the the last time we saw a splice onto Arcane would have been the Gorio's Vengeance build that used you had because you had Nourishing Shoal through the Breach, uh, Gorio's Vengeance, and then uh, Desperate Ritual. So you could actually get a like a through the Breach splice off or a, a Mana Ramp splice off in some circumstances, but does not come up terribly often. Yeah, the um. I think that this deck, you have to assume that it's a flash spike, that it's just going to, you know, occupy people's attention for 20 or 30 days, and then we're going to get into Throne of Eldraine reveal season, and people are going to forget about this deck, and sell cards accordingly. So if you've got a pile of, you know, you're not going to have a pile of Vizier of Tumbling Sands foils, but you pro- if you're an old enough player, you probably do have a pile of Ideas Unbound and Reach Through Mist, which foils and non-foils are present on buy list right now. Oh, yeah. At, yeah. At very attractive numbers. And I'm sure the bulk guys are going crazy over that. Oh, yeah. It's probably awesome because it's the type of card that, like, you feel bad getting rid of because you know it's decent and you figure someone will always pay quarters for. And now, if you hadn't gotten around to selling them and suddenly your 70 ideas unbound are worth two bucks instead of 20 cents. It's yeah. Good news. And, and, and you didn't know a land that made three mana was going to be the, the tipping point. You thought it was going to be a return to Kamigawa, but here you go. Yep. All right, Balthor the Defiled, uh, foils and non-foils out of judgment. The non-foils, 5 to supposedly 25. Uh, Command Zone was talking about this as a, as a madness upgrade uh, because you can pay 3 mana and exile Balthor and return all creatures from your grave, all red and black creatures from your graveyard to play. So you pitch a bunch of stuff with, you know, via your madness tools. Um, not all of them they being... Were- Hmm? Yeah, I think they were talking specifically about Chainer, if Chainer was the deck you were building around. Gotcha. Um, because Chainer discards cards and then returns creatures from the graveyard, and then 
all the stuff you discarded to get that going, you could exile Balthor and bring it all back. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know, it's a random card. You might have a copy or two sitting in your collection from way back in Judgment Days. Not a lot of that flowing into stores these days. Balthor is a card that I have absolutely looked up a couple times wanting to make it useful, uh, but it never really gets there. Um, It's just like, oh, this is a card that should be good, but it's it's just not good enough for whatever application, whether it's dwarf. I think it's mostly as a dwarf thing is what I tend to look at it for. Next on the list, we've got Primordial Mist out of Commander 2018, in theory going from just about a dollar to something like four dollars. This is if you think the morph deck's going anywhere, we don't really seem to. So if buy lists are looking attractive on this card, I think you're a sell. Yeah, I mean, anything that's a morph card is a sell, I think, right? I think so. Um, Yeah. I mean, some of the morph cards have space in other archetypes currently card king was paying 98 cents on these so if you got in on them at 50 to 75 you're doing just fine yeah yeah i mean yeah i I guess i don't the demand for morph is going to peak somewhere between now and probably november right like roughly in that time frame uh yeah and then the the problem the problem though is that the commander decks lead into throne of eldraine where you're going to get a whole pile of new action yeah i wonder if there's going to be any morph in that I, I I don't see any signal that that's something we're getting because the there's already a messy physical mechanic in play, I think, with their like storybook frame that they showed us. Yeah. Yeah, like, I would agree are, it doesn't seem like it quite fits. I, I would imagine the other mechanics in the set will be relatively tame by comparison to that one. Mm. Morph is a mess. Uh, ideas Unbound, non-foils. We were just talking about this earlier. Otis of Saviors, Kamigawa, 50 cents to three bucks. Again, the Twiddle deck. Um, Anthem of Rakdos. This is a uh, from Dissension. Foils a dollar and change up to 15 bucks because it's a guild packed, I think, or I'm sorry, Dissension foil. So there's zero of them uh, really out there and they got cleaned up and there's no supply to rush back to the market. Uh, so a pretty big jump there, supposedly, if you can actually sell them for 14 or $15. I don't know if the Madness deck is quite popular enough to pull that off. It basically yeah. gives... It's Furnace of Wrath if you have no cards in hand. Yeah. So it's not clear to me whether people are filling around with that with Chainer again or whether they, they're uh, fitting it into Greven. But either way, I think that... <laughs> The this is the kind of card I would want to be unloading whatever singular copies I have lying around and just moving right along. Yeah, I would be uh, refreshing vendor buy lists on this constantly and hoping somebody puts some number up greater than what I paid for it so I could just get out immediately. Yeah. Finish off here, James. All right, so last on the list, uh, also from the Twiddle deck, Reach Through Miss. Uh, Champions of Kamigawa, common foil from fifty cents to twenty dollars. I think you want you're probably aiming to get out on these at like six, seven, eight dollars and be call it happy. Oh yeah, um, twenty yeah. twenty is crazy, and I don't see people de- tripping over themselves to foil out this deck in paper. 
No, that's what I was just going to say. <laughs> much more of a Magic Online meme deck than it is a something you're likely to sleeve up for FNM. Although I did, that being said, anecdotally, at least I think one, maybe two members of our Discord said they were sleeving it up and were trying to buy pieces of it in our, our uh, buy-sell trade forum. And people were all too happy to oblige them. Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt... I mean, this is exactly the type of thing I would take for a spin at FNM. Um, and it might even be a semi-decent deck. But, you know, if you can build the entire deck for $80 in non-foil, but it's $700 in foil, like, no one's going to bother to build tw- the total deck in foil until it is a very well-established deck. And even then, people don't really build ad nauseum in foil. So good luck. All right, segment two. Our that was a really short segment one. Frankly, uh, this we've had a, a lot of long lists. That was short at uh, about eleven cards. Um, segment two are cards to watch. Uh, James, you've got some cards here to talk about. Why don't you get us started? So, there's been a lot of speculation uh, over the last few months that, for instance, Hall of Heliod's generosity was a plant in MH1 for a return to Theros. And the question has become, when are we going to Theros? The whispers have been all over the place, but I I like the theory that Theros is the first set in 2020. That we are going to Eldraine in the fall, Theros in the winter, and then who knows where we're going for the third set in the spring. Um, Could be a snow set. Could new be something Phyrexia. else. Could be new Phyrexia. Trying to resolve the Karn plot line. Hard to say. Um, part of it depends on, you know, what big bads are set up in Eldraine and whether it seems like they are bleeding into other planes. Like, is is Phyrexia going to show up in Eldraine and then be a problem also on Theros and, and then they, you know, go back to the font on new Phyrexia to try to shut it all down? Um, that's a possible narrative. Um, but we're not, you know, super strong in the Vorthos. So bottom line is, I think that Hall of Heliod's generosity has bottomed out, more or less. You can find them in and around three bucks. Um, it is Volros Stronghold for art, for enchantments and will be one of the first cards to spike if Theros is confirmed because it comes at a Modern Horizon. So it has double the usual cost basis, which means $3, you know, price tag on that for a card that's going to be useful in EDH for years and years and years and years. Um, people will just start flailing around looking for enchantment, enchantments matters cards when Theros is announced, and I'd like to be holding a nice thick stack of about 100 Hall of Heliod's Generosity at that point. I'm surprised that your outlook here is so conservative. You've got it listed from 3 to 5, but I could see this doing like a 3 to 7 or 3 to 8 type of deal. Yeah, I picked 5 because I think the out here is buy list. Like, mm. because your your people are probably not building modern decks where where you're using this as a four of. And the reason I say that is because if we're going to Theros for one set, then you're getting one small set worth of cards. If you're going to Theros for a whole block, that's a different story because you're getting like close to 600 or 700 cards um, where enchantments might matter in new and exciting ways. But just one set is likely going to get people all revved up and then they're going to realize there's really only five or six really important competitive cards that are related some devotion stuff and then you know a double handful fistful of stuff for edh and it might turn out that it's more temporary than it is archetype defining for modern um so i don't want to be selling them one at a time i want to be buy listing 100 copies and doubling up yeah i see your your best 
outcome here is probably they print a very fascinating enchantment commander. Yeah. Um, that is, ends up being very popular and makes this uh, a lot better, you know, sort of like an Atraxa uh, for enchantments, basically. Yeah, you need... You- it, we're due for an enchantments matter commander that seems very likely to be gifted to us in Theros, given that they design for commander from within standard these days. Um, so yeah, I, three bucks on Holotelia's generosity. Whether it ends up being a six month target or an eighteen month one, I'd be happy to hold it if I know I'm going to get like sixty seven percent out of that um, somewhere within that that sphere of activity. You know, I would also expect a return of uh, Constellation, right? That was the mechanic, wasn't it? When you, the, that was, that was in when the you... second one, I think. Um, Devotion was introduced in the in the first one. Uh, well, there were enchantment. Oh, was that what it was? They waited until the false, the spring think... set to roll it out. Yeah, I think the second set no, introduced cause... Constellation. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. I'd have to go back and look it up, but. Uh, they did say that they regretted how much they waited to put Enchantment Matters to really pay off the Enchantment Matters themes until Journey into Nyx. I vividly remember them talking about that. So I wouldn't be surprised if they go a little bit harder on the enchantments this time around. Like really say, hey, if this is an enchantment set, we are going to make some damn enchantments. Um, so that you, yeah, might, it- you might be surprised at how good they are. Mechanics were Devotion, Monstrosity, and Heroic. Okay. In in Theros. And then they got to Constellation in, in Born of the Gods, I think. Gotcha. Ooh, pardon me. You're boring me, James. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we had Bestow in Born of the Gods, More Devotion, and Inspired. So I think Constellation actually must have been Journey into Nyx. Okay, that's when we got uh, Eidolon of Blossoms and Doomwake Giant. The cards that actually made those decks good but weren't playable, you wouldn't actually have access to them until the third set, like nine months later. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, my first card this week is Animate Dead. Um, the two mana black enchantment returns a creature from a graveyard to the battlefield with very complicated rules text. Was reprinted in Eternal Masters, which we are a couple years past now as an uncommon. Those foils from EMA are currently $7. And uh, if you are unfamiliar with Animate Dead, it is something like the third or fourth most popular card in black, I think. It is up there in EDH. Extremely popular card. And uh, it is in 17,000 EDH rec lists. Um, There is very low supply on the EMA copies. Uh, I think, you know, maybe 10, 15 tops. There's also a really steep ramp on these. Uh, Animate Dead is is a real good one. Um, so this is, this is a treat for our pro traders because there's not going to be any left by the time this, uh, cast gets unlocked. Yep. That is dead certain. Cause I'm looking at that list right now and you are absolutely right. The thing about this is they do not print two mana, uh, reanimate spells anymore that have very minor downside. It's very much a thing. They like to put it four mana. Yeah. Uh, They'll put it at lower casting cost if it's returning it to your hand, but returning it to play is typically reserved for further up the scale because it's just so easy and abusable to put stuff in your graveyard early and bring it back. So 
Yeah, it's not like they print one mana cards that let you dump a ton of cards into your graveyard or anything like that. Certainly, yeah. they've never printed Faithless Looting or Stitcher Supplier. Uh, but I think you can get in at, um, you know, if you get in at 7 to 8, you're probably getting out at least at 15. And realistically, I would say hey, you could probably get away with $20. Demand on this is so high that, like, it's going to buy out or sell out. But then it's not like the prices are going to um, re- uh, retrace that hard. It's too good to retrace. The only potential blowout here is if we're right and there's a premium product that is Masters-esque at the end of the year that has a whole swath of new reprints, this could make it a, make it in there because Eternal Masters was a few years back now. Yeah, I mean, that's always a risk, right? Um, the, the, this type of stuff gets reprinted, uh, which, yeah, again, is, is true of a lot of the picks you and I make. Uh, but I guess we just have to make them with the assumption that you just hope you dodge those. I mean, I think this is the kind of card you're going to sell onesie twosie of in a month kind of thing. So yeah. you plan, you want to be about as deep as the earliest time slot time, like that it can get reprinted times the number of months in between then and now. So if I thought it might get reprinted in December, then I'm going to buy four copies. If I think that it might get dis- reprinted in next March, maybe I'm going to buy six to 10 copies. And I think that's a, a, a solid rule of thumb. Um, you know, how many singles, if it's an EDH card, or how many play sets, if it's a competitive card, do I think I can churn through before this thing is at risk? Yeah. And, you know, this is, I I, I would tell you to try and uh, be patient and wait until like October to see if we get any products released and then make the decision to see it, you know, are, are, you know, are they releasing another premium product this fall or not? But the supply is so low, you don't have that. You don't have that time. You don't have that luxury. So you just buy now and hope that it doesn't get reprinted in October is really what it comes down to. Yeah, fair. All right. I like that pick a lot. Um, the other card that I think is going to get snapped up once Theros is revealed is Nykthos Shrine to Nyx. We've talk- we talked about the foils a while back, and they're already pretty low. Like, that pick has already worked out. It's pretty hard to find foils under 40 bucks. I think we called them around 25 or 30, if I'm not mistaken. Um, now I'm talking about non-foils, because there's a reasonably decent supply. Like, you don't need to, like, charge super hard at this. But if you were to pick up some copies around, say, $10, and it doesn't catch a reprint in this set then my that may come in january then a sell target to buy list of like say 16 seems very reasonable to me and the thing is that if you're getting a full block retread then your chances of a reprint are much higher but even if you think there's going to be devotion i suspect that they're going to give you new toys to play with as opposed to revisiting old toys yeah i don't think you're going to get any new gods i don't think you're going to get nykthos i don't think you're going to get any any of the cards that you saw other than like some very specific like commons maybe that makes sense in that draft environment. But other, other than that, I think most of the rares and mythics are probably very safe. Yeah. If we look back at the recent return to Ravnica, uh, which you got a full block return to the, to the environment, to the setting. And it was the third time we've been in that setting, which means you had two full trips to Ravnica prior worth of cards to consider reprinting. The number of reprints in guilds of Ravnica was like really low, right? 
Like I, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, it was close to zero. Like there was no, they didn't reprint Abrupt Decay. They printed Assassin's Trophy. Um, so it's just there's they have shown that they're basically not reprinting a lot of that stuff, especially be, especially cards with um with mechanics on it. Now this is doesn't have a keyword on it, but it's clearly intended to play with the keyword. But because you know the the return to Ravnica this time around only shared a couple keywords with your older sets. So like the, oh God, uh, let me think for a second. What was in Return to Ravnica as a keyword? Like uh, the one real? Sir, no, that was this time around. Uh, what was the one? Convoke. Convoke was a, re, was a retread. Yes. You said, okay, but I mean like, what was a mechanic that was in one of the old Ravnica sets that wasn't in this one? There was that, uh, what was the one where you? Lots of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's my point, was that only one or two mechanics return anyways. So they yep. kind of cut themselves off from those reprints to begin with because any card that has an old keyword on it only has, you know, there's only like a one in 10 or, or one in five chance you're going to bring that keyword back anyways. And if they don't bring that keyword back, you're definitely not seeing that reprint. Um, so which is which is ancillary to Nykthos because Nykthos is not keyworded, but it's a similar concept. So the the hook here is like, would they reprint Nykthos or would they give you a new version of Nykthos? Nykthos is is a very cleanly printed card for Devotion. It's not clunky. It's not keyworded. And it's a little hard to imagine where else they might go with a land that plays with Devotion the way this does. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure they were real pleased with how that played out in Standard. Um, they they are definitely setting us up you for You think devotion. it was too good? Yeah, and, they, I, and they're definitely setting us up for Devotion because of what we got in Commander 2020. They gave us all of the elemental knights with three casting, like three pips in their casting cost. Yeah. Um, so that seems to signal that Devotion is coming. Agreed. And that means that you have to at least consider the reprint potential. Like, I would put it at 30 to 40%, but not any higher than that. Because I think that single set revisit suggests to me that you're mostly going to focus on new cards. There's a smaller set. They're not going to have that many slots available. They're, they just gave us half of the Scrylands in 2020 as well. That was one of the other clues about Theros forthcoming because it's if you if you have a small set as opposed to a block, you don't have room to put all 10 Scrylands in play. So you probably get five in the summer set and five in the January set. And it starts to eat up a lot of slots in this smaller set. Yeah. Assuming it is a smaller set. If it's a, if it's a large set, which it could be, um, you've got more room to play with. Um, but I don't. we don't know. The set's not announced yet, so we don't know if it's large or small. You can assume large to cover your bases, but even then, I, I feel pretty confident that even if it ends up in there, you're going to have a couple of month window between when you know it's a Theros set and when it you find out if it's in there where you're going to be able to sell the card. For sure, for sure. And I'm I'm rambling, you know, talking about how reprintable Nykthos is, but the fact of the matter is they reprint very few cards. You'll have a large window between the announcement of Theros and when it would actually be spoiled if it was in the set that people will get excited about it. And they could just as easily print a card, you know, a land that's one tap, at, you know, put a number of 1-1 one, one counters on target creature equal to its devotion or something like that. So, like, there are a bunch of different ways they could go with the land, Uh yeah, so I mean, in the Ravnica block, in, in Re- Guilds of Ravnica last fall, we got Chromatic Lantern, mm-hmm. we got we got the Shocklands, and we got the Guildgates. 
See, I wouldn't even count the shock lands and the guild gates because those are non-utility lands, which are kind of different. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, like, total, given that they had two other blocks to draw from, that's what they served up. Yeah, so I would say, if you said what were the reprints in that set, I would say Chromatic Lantern was basically and the, and the, the only one. And the other thing that impacts what gets reprinted these days, as we've talked about from different angles at various times, is that in Theros, they gave us Thoughtseize. Sit, because Thoughtseize needed reprinting for Modern. But since that time, they've decided that some of those spells that are perfect power level for Modern, but really overpowered for Standard, they would rather dump them into Master Sets. I mean, that was part of the philosophy around building out those products, those premium products, was that you could set that up as a re, uh, reprint uh, delivery system and let Standard be about Standard. Mm-hmm. So that makes something like Nykthos, which, you know, Commander players are definitely going to want, um, as the supply dwindles, they can they can deliver that. At ten dollars, it could make it into a commander deck. Sketchy, but doable, but much more likely to show up in a master style set as a rare. Yeah, yeah, I and then agree. bottom and then bottom out at four bucks again. Yeah, I, I think at, at ten dollars, you're you're pretty good. Um, you know, if Theros is coming in the early next year uh they're going to announce theros and nykthos is going to take off because people are going to get excited and want to go get copies because they're going to expect devotion to come back because that was sort of the defining characteristic of that set um so i think it's very unlikely that you lose out here all right uh my other gift to you all this week is foil runescar demons um out of technically uh iconic masters but um the m12 copies are available as well you can get the ima foils of runescar demon for about 650 i think the m like 11 or m12 ones start at uh rather than starting at 650 or like probably like 758 maybe 850 uh i like all of these up to probably 15 dollars or so this is in 11,000 edh reckless so not quite as popular as animate dead but still very highly rated uh, and supply across both foil printings is really, really low. We're talking like, I think there are maybe 15 foil copies between both versions under like $15 right now. So this is another one that's just going to get, there's, it's clearly the demand is there. Supply is almost empty. Uh, the people listening to this cast are going to grab the last couple copies and you're going to sell them for 15 bucks or so. Yeah. I mean, I, IMA is about as bad as a master set can be. But that doesn't change the fact that best cards out of even a bad master set, given enough time, even though foils were in every pack, will climb back up. Probably eighteen months plus is usually pretty uh, solid horizon to start looking at this stuff and realizing that you're facing a strong price ladder and a low inventory. It is probably worth at this point going back through IMA. Uh, and seeing what's in there because i haven't looked through the ima list in a long time and uh, i'd be curious now to see what's floating around in that set that might be worth picking up yep agreed um my final pick this week is a bit of an obvious one and i'm gonna definitely tip my hat to let's say starting with douglas johnson who has harped on about this card and this opportunity for years um BSB as a cast mentioned it in their last episode and it has mentioned it many times in the past. And at some point or another, almost all of us have talked about this as kind of the poster child for some reprints are just opportunities and not losses. 
Um, one of the most obvious ones is back in our face again, Soul Ring. Soul Ring is the number one must-include card in every commander deck from here until somebody eventually gets around to banning it, which may never happen. And as a result, you when they come out in the commander decks, which is the only place they seem to get printed, um, although there is a promo, uh, uh, some Soul Rings getting handed out of GPs this year as well, um, I don't think that's going to make a tremendous difference on whether cheap copies from Commander 2019 end up being a buy list play. Most copies of Soul Ring from Commander decks uh, buy list over $3. We just scooped several hundred copies in Europe this weekend uh, as a pro trader group buy for a buck fifty a piece. And I have every confidence that everyone touching those is going to make money. So it, I think that you look for either scooping these in Europe or you... Uh, wait for a good coupon on either eBay or a major vendor. Like I think CFB had 20% off their posted prices this week. You're looking for something like a 20 to 40% off sale in the next few months and looking to get these as, you know, as cheap as you can in Europe, somewhere between a buck 50 and two in the U S somewhere between two and 20, 225. And you're looking to buy less than between like three and three fifty at some point. These types of options come up like every, really every commander product, right? The solar ring comes out or whatever card you buy them at dirt cheap when it relaunches, you wait a little while and then you sell them. I don't super love these plays just because it feels like move raise that. I think you are guaranteed for this to work. I don't love them for the effort it involves. Um, and I think people for people like dog, it works a lot better who are doing that. Those sort of high volume deals uh, for, you know, the for the armchair grinder like me, it's a little less appealing, but I respect that it is a rock solid can't miss choice. So from that regard, it's more guaranteed to make you money than anything else here. So what part of it do you consider to be high effort? Well, I got to go buy them all. And then I have to wait. <laughs> and then I have to file the buy, and then I have to file the buy list like nine months later. Or whatever. Okay, so I, I just, just want to make sure you're setting the standards so people can compare it to their own standards. I think most of our Discord would agree that if you get to scoop a hundred copies straight up from a vendor in Europe, get it in one package that arrives at your house or goes to a partner and then bounces to you, sit on it for a year and then flip it for a solid margin, then no one's going to complain. Uh, well, clearly I will. Yeah, established. <laughs> I didn't say. I did not say it's a bad idea. I just it's just not net my preferred operating method. I like to buy giant piles of morph cards and then get owned when nobody wants to play morph. <laughs> okay. Well then my preferred strategy. You know, fair enough. Yeah. All right. Uh segment three, our metagame week in review. Um we have GP Birmingham here, and I was I was just telling James uh off cast here that I can't I really don't want to talk about modern that much because we had Birmingham last weekend, which Bob has said is a bunch of Hogak. Uh, we have Vegas this coming weekend, which is going to be a bunch of Hogak. And then it is virtually guaranteed that he is getting banned, possibly with something else, uh, on Monday of the 26th. Um, happy birthday to me. So uh, I think, you know, we can talk about what's here, and this will kind of bleed into the one of the first questions of our mailbag. Um, but I see, I see, I see a Death Shadow deck took first, which is, uh, which is reassuring at least, you know, normal decks playing something close to real magic are still able of doing well. 
Um, I noticed they were playing four Ranger Captain of Eos, which I was a little surprised by because I was not that impressed with this card, but he seems to be gaining more and more traction as time goes on. Uh, and he might be end up being just another Modern Horizons home run um, and a bit of a sleeper. But he's the the three mana three three. You can search your library for one creature card that's one or less. Uh, and if you sack it, you silence your opponent, basically. Although silence is all spells. This is sack, so they can't play non-creature spells. I, I think that Ranger Captain and Seasoned Pyromancer may end up being very similar in price down the road. I, I do not disagree with you. I, I think that Seasoned Pyromancer is out in the lead because it is associated with um, a, a few different decks, but primarily was showing up in Arclight Phoenix decks, which post-Hogak are poised to be in the top four decks in the format. Um, Arclight Phoenix decks uh, in their various incarnations have done well all year, even in the face of Hogak. Um, so, and, you know, beyond Hogak are are going to be a strong presence. So there are other decks, also about as many decks running uh, Ranger Captain of Eos, but they're not top aiding as often. So to see it here winning a modern tournament gives me some hope that they are going to close the gap and that at minimum Ranger Captain, say 12 to 18 months out, will be a 20 to $25 card. Currently, I, I considered putting it on my list this week. I have bought some this week around 10 bucks using CK credit because I, I have so much of it. Like I'm sitting on about 4,000 of it and have been draining it constantly down from about 6,600. Um, at a peak earlier this summer. So in that kind of scenario, it makes sense to be going in on them at 10 because it's a, a solid long-term gain that's going to appreciate better than stagnant buy list credit. But as a you know a time-sensitive spec, it's less exciting. I think you want to keep your eye on the inventory here. You can actually use MTG Price Pro Trader tools to see how much inventory our vendors have um, when you're logged into the site, which will give you a lot of insight into whether you need to move quickly. And you can cross-reference that against TCG Player, where that is uh, readily available info, to try to get a sense of when the market starts to drain heavily. Um, our contacts in Europe claim that uh, they went through... A, like One of our vendors had about 100 copies lined up for us if we wanted them, and we were kind of passing on them. And they ended up just selling them after the, G, the finish of the GP because people were jumping on top of them thinking that it's the next big thing. Um, I think those people are a little premature, but on a six to twelve month horizon, I really really like the card. Uh, yeah, I, I'm on the same, pretty much the same page. I think Young Pyromancer came out of the gate hot. He was showing up in the Arc White season stacks. People, season, yeah, season Pyromancer. People were making. I think he even showed up in a Hogak deck or two, right? Like, so there's a lot of attempts early on with him. Um, but I agree that you know, as as lukewarm as I was on Ranger Captain and kind of still am, he does seem to be doing pretty well here. Um, so, you know, a year out from now, maybe a year and a half, he could be in, in pretty good shape. Um, and I think that the other thing people always have to consider with Modern Horizons is that the cost basis was doubled. So a $10 Mythic, which is what Ranger Captain's at about now, um, is the equivalent of a $5 Mythic out of a standard set that's seeing four of play in Modern. So if, if there was a, if Arclight Phoenix was $5, I think we could all agree that it was going to go up. <laughs> Yeah, and that seems to be where Ranger Captain could be headed, and Season Pyromancer is more or less already at. Um, so Season Pyromancer at twenty five is probably the more reliable to stay, you know, neck and neck in the top eight for the rest of you know the, the foreseeable future, next twelve months or so. But the thing is, Ranger Captain is both of those cards are, are playable in EDH. 
I mean, EDH is definitely more about big fatties than it is one drops, but being able to pull Ranger Captain, put Ranger Captain down and go get some kind of toolbox element is not completely crazy. Mm-hmm. And if we ever see a rise in combo, like a um, more spell-based combo, I'm not counting Hogak, but something like Storm or to that effect, his stock actually goes up because of that second line of text, which I imagine is relatively inconsequential at the moment. But the fact that you can deny your opponent their combo turn by sacrificing him and give yourself an entire additional turn after that uh, can be huge when we're talking about trying to get an, push enough damage through um, to you know to, to either kill them or, or catch them the turn the, you know the turn they have to go off. Yeah, I mean, see, neither Season Pyromancer nor Ranger Captain are like real high on the list of Modern Horizon cards that are taking EDH by storm. Um, yeah, but they have enough flexibility that I can easily see them slotting in over time. And if Modern is the primary driver, that's fine. Um, one of the questions will be what will happen to cards that were printed specifically for Modern if Historic was to take foot a foothold in the next two to three years if historic makes its way off of arena and into paperland are modern horizons cards going to get grandfathered into that or are they going to be lopped off yeah where the wizard's direction with formats and paper is a question mark at the moment uh and but it will have a major impact if they kind of formally push another uh, another format, right? Like, that'll be a huge deal. Yeah. So the rest of this top eight was three Hogak decks. That card is getting banned on the 26th. Um, yeah. I don't care what anybody says. They're, they're not going to risk submarining the format any further. It's already egg on face for enough time now. They already tried killing the ancillary card by getting rid of Bridge from Below. That didn't work. The deck was arguably better afterwards. And now it's time for it to go. And I don't think anybody's going to yeah. fight it. Strangely, people are still buying the card from me, and I'm now in the habit of sending... Somebody bought a copy this morning. I sent them a note immediately saying, this is probably getting banned on the 26th. Do you still want this card? And now I'm just waiting to hear back. Um, hmm. It is, in theory, a legacy card. It's been showing up in legacy. So maybe people are still buying it for that purpose. Um, it could be a cube card. You, you will see it in Commander. But I, I would expect the price to get real low here. 2 to $3 is my guess. Um, in the yeah. top four, we also had an Urza deck. This one was back on the Goblin Engineer plan. Um, all the usual portions. This is with Thopter Foundry and Sword of the Meek and a bunch of utility artifacts backed by War of Invention being able to tutor. A Burn deck um, was in fifth place, and this was with Monastery Swift Spears, Eidolon of the Great Rebel, Goblin Guide, and the White-Red complement of spells. Um, running for Sunbaked Canyon, by the way. Um, I think that is N2 Fiery Islet. Um, I think Sunbaked Canyon is the most played of the canopy lands so far. So that's Which I think we, we we knew going into this, right? Like Red White was going to be the most lo- likely to take advantage of that with uh, possibly Blue Red nearby. I, I think people assumed Fiery Islet would be the big one because Blue Red lands tend to be. Um, but as it turns out, the the canopy lands are mostly about reach um, for aggro decks or things that can be abused with, say, Renin 6, because you can keep bringing it back and drawing more cards. Um, and some of the other decks don't want to have lands that do that per se. Um, so they're running lower quantities if they're running them at all. Um, and then we had Hardened Scales, which we saw 
uh, in the finals of the Pro Tour, and here again we see it in the top eight. So Hardened Scales Affinity seems like it can hang with the big boys and might be one of the top five decks uh, come Hogak disappearing. And a blue-white control build. Um, I'm got, I haven't seen the list yet, but I'm loading it now, and I'm assuming it's running some combination of the Teferis, Jace, and Narset, and sure enough it is. Yeah, this does show up pretty regularly uh, in our metagame discussions or when we're browsing the the modern league results. Uh, there, you know, it's pretty common for hardened scales to sneak in here. I don't see it winning a lot, but I do see it showing up. Um, and it seems like there's a couple different variations on it. Although the animation module seems pretty common obviously the mox opals metallic mimic is showing up a lot metallic mimic is an interesting card that it's already god what is this thing so tcg is around six bucks on this and it's possible that metallic mimic is uh, is slated to go up i'm going to check the inventory here i think it's still pretty deep um but this card was really popular right out of the gate even uh even before we really saw it doing anything in modern because it's so popular with casuals. Looks like there's about 120 vendors of non-foils right now. Prices are around $4 or so. I got to tell you, I don't like, I'm not telling you all to run out and buy this, but I could see Metallic Mimics at $10 probably by the end of next year. I'd have to do an inventory check before I'd have commentary on that. I do have a, I have a separate question for you. Um, okay. Which of these two would you rather be putting money into if they were your only two choices? Teref Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, the five casting cost Teferi, on rotation, it's about to rotate, uh, as a mythic. Or Teferi Time Raveler, out of War of the Spark, still your left and standard, at 10 bucks. Time Raveler at 10, and what's the Hero Dominaria? Uh, I would guess down to 20 right now, and I would guess on rotation probably going to dip to 15. Let me just take a look. Well, you know, without even not knowing, I think it's probably just Hero of Dominaria, or uh, I'm sorry, Time Raveler. Hero of Dominaria was very powerful, and, you know, we still see it pop up in Modern a little bit, but it is still a 5-mana Planeswalker, and Time Raveler at 3-mana is almost more, like, it's just so much more potent on 3 um, and you, you know, you, you were saying that in one of the modern league results, somebody started playing delay with it because delay is a two mana counter spell that puts it on the, puts the spell on rebound. But when the spell rebounds, uh, if the fairies in play, they can't cast spells. Well, you know, unless sorcery speed and, and the rebound screws that up. So basically it turns delay into a hard counter as long as the fairies in play, which is uh, just one of many cute combos people have assembled with uh, Time Raveler. Um, we've seen him in so many different decks, so many different builds. Basically, I think Hero or Time Raveler is going to be a major staple in modern for years and years to come. And supply is still very deep right now. Um, and I, I, I keep coming back to it wanting to buy it, and it, it doesn't feel right yet. But I, I would be shocked if this wasn't a $25 card down the road. I agree. Um, one of the conversations in the Discord this week for pro traders have MTG Price was about um, one of our members pointing out how few standard rares were able to hold a uh, command a $10 plus price tag post rotation. Um, and it's a very low number. Like it's going back several years, it's like one or two cards per set. And mm -hmm. usually because it's something like a smothering tithe or a cyclonic rift 
um, or uh, I think Teferi Time Reveler probably qualifies and could pretty easily go 10 to 15. I think 10 to 20 will be harder given how much War of the Spark was opened within a certain time frame, partially because in modern it's not really run as a four of. You're seeing it as onesie, twosie, threesie, not really foursie. And so, and I think that's one of the problems with Teferi Hero of Dominaria as well, is that even though that is one of the more powerful Planeswalkers ever printed and is going to see some modicum of cube and EDH demand over time, in modern it seems like the blue-white control players have settled in, and even when they dip into Jeskai or whatever, have settled in, or Asper, um, have settled on Hero of Dominaria being usually a one of. And that's just not enough action to drive big growth. Um, so I, it's tricky. I don't think I would prioritize Hero Dominaria at all. And I'm debating how many Time Ravelers I want to own at current pricing. Um, well, and you know, when I want to be purchasing them. Time Raveler might not get in as a four of regularly in modern but it seems to be showing up in enough different decks sort of enough different strategies that it's really posting up as a modern staple which i think does a lot for people's willingness to own them um and i see that as something like a tarmogoy for liliana so the the base price might not be as high as those cards but it is a oh yeah if you're going to play modern with any seriousness you will probably want to have this card in your permanent collection, right? Like you just it, it gets played in it played in enough decks enough of the time that you should just have them on hand. As opposed to like you know ad nauseum, like yeah, like if you're gonna play the ad nauseum deck, you want ad nauseums. But if you're not playing that deck, you don't care. Um, but fairies just say yes, this is going to my modern box. Um, which means a lot of players are going to own copies and not really be eager to get rid of them just because they want to have it on hand for when they do need it. Add to that that it looks like it's quite solid in EDH too. It's in 1700 EDH decks already, and it only came out a couple months ago. Now, that doesn't mean that it's really well positioned in EDH relative to War of the Spark. So a quick look here. I'm seeing Teferi is actually really far down the list of popular cards out of war the spark and edh but war the spark was an absurd set for edh cards um so i don't really see that as a strike against it and i think a lot of blue white edh decks would consider teferi because locking your opponents out of playing at instant speed is actually a huge deal because you're not hitting one opponent you're hitting three like that is really obnoxious yep so I guess my thought being that like even though it's not a four of in every in all the decks that get played gets played in, it seems like an important enough card that most players are going to own want to own copies and just hold on to them because they know they will find reasons to play them. I think where I can get to Fairy Time Revelers under ten dollars via a coupon of some sort, I'm into it. Buy list credit seems fine, and I think the play on Hero of Dominaria is probably foils post rotation. If some cheap foils get dumped into the market and people like panic sell them like ten or fifteen dollars below everybody else, that's probably a buy um, because foil mythics just aren't that populous. And as you said, you know it's kind of like the Liliana of the Veil argument. When Jund was bad for a long time and hardly any decks were running Liliana, she was still, you know, her price was still uh, posting up pretty strongly in the market because, as you said, people aren't eager to dump those cards because they assume that one day they will need them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that Hero Dominaria may end up the same way. The other thing to consider is that there is a Mythic Edition version of uh, Hero Dominaria 
that might float down um, post-rotation and give people an opportunity to scoop some copies relatively cheaply. That that would be my go-to uh, more so than the pack foils. It feels like if you're in the market to spend that type of money on foil hero or, you know, hero dominarias, like you would probably be willing to just reach a little bit and get the mythic editions rather than just bother with the pack foils. Like there's 26 listings on TCG for the mythic edition version of hero dominaria, but the ramp is really steep. Like there's one person with a copy at $172 and then pretty quickly you're up over 300. That says to <laughs> me that those will get picked off Jeez. onesie twosie over time and it'll be a $300 card and you'll make, if you get in under two, you'll make a hundred minus fees and that will be a nice little uh, 40 or 50% return. Yeah. And it, that seems like those probably will not take much of a dip at all at rotation either. Um, I could see waiting until rotation just to see if you get lucky, but I'm guessing that not many are going to hit the market much cheaper than that 170. Fair enough. All right, so uh, we're going to do like a little bit of a mailbag grab bag kind of thing. Yep. Uh, yeah. And the, yep. And the first question that we got was, "What does modern look like post Hogak ban?" Which uh, you know we're not the best <laughs> yeah. people to answer this question. We're paying attention, right? but we're not the ones playing the games. Right. I think what the, what the important thing to remember here is that you're basically just going to take the dredge decks and wipe them out of the format. Um, and but well, nothing the else will change. Decks, but I think that brings right. back classic dredge is probably one of the top four decks. I think Tron's sure. versions of Tron leaning towards green Tron, um, Arclight Phoenix variants, and then humans. I suppose. Yeah. And anything that was that's good was good right before Modern Horizons got printed or is good sort of in spite of Hogak is still going to be there. Is it Phoenix will probably be close to the best deck. Tron still going to be around. Humans is still going to be around. Those are going to be your big candidates. It's not like the format's going to erupt in a, in a slew of new decks just because Hogak got banned. What's going to happen. So those first couple weeks, uh, you're just going to see people return to decks that were good before. Now, then the metagame will adjust from there as people kind of figure out what's going on. Maybe graveyard hate gets studying, starts getting caught from sideboards because Hogak's gone and which will use some other graveyard decks to thrive. Um, I don't know for sure, but we're not the people to answer that question. You have to look to the strategist for that. My, my takeaway here is that it's not like I can point to a specific deck and go, Oh yeah, this deck is terrible right now, but on August 26th, it's going to be amazing. Like, I don't have that information, and I, I don't think that that's going to happen at all. You want to be listening to stuff like the Arena podcast and, and Sam Black's podcast to get their latest thoughts on, on how the meta is going to shift. And then you want to be trying to figure out if that is actually going to shift buying behavior. If you if you think that a deck is going to take over for Hogak, taking three or four slots per top eight, then you might want to make a move. If you just think it's going to be getting rid of the Hogax and then everything else is going to look more or less the same, then that doesn't indicate big movement in the now. Um, it, uh, yeah. It, it does. I think what it, Hogak being banned does more effectively, rather than, say, allowing a whole bunch of new decks to come to the forefront, is that it encourages people to play modern. And and that's what's really going to sell cards, is that pe- is people going to their FNM and bringing meme decks sells cards. Um, if they think they're going to run into Hogak and get destroyed on turn two and they're never going to get a chance to do their thing, they're going to be less interested. Yeah, 
I think the point here is that it's it's unlikely to dramatically shift buying patterns, especially towards one or two specific cards in a way that's easy to capitalize on. Now, I, I will say that it does leave a little bit of a vacuum that we could see something pop up with because what you have here is specifically Stitcher Supplier. Um, so Frank Carson uh, did crunch some numbers on it and said in, in the Hogak deck, Stitcher Supplier is one mana for an Ancestral Recall, a Black Lotus, and a Mox Jet. He's like, this card fills all three of those roles for one mana. So it's possible that people didn't quite appreciate just how good Stitcher Supplier was. And that even after Hogak goes, people will go back to the drawing board to try and figure out how to best make use of Stitcher Supplier. And it's there might be a permutation of the deck that makes use of some other graveyard type card that was previously underused and is does a pretty good job of filling in for Hogak. Um, and then that card might go up in price, sort of like, oh, now that we all know how good Stitcher Supplier is, maybe there's another deck out there. That's an opportunity. But there's, there still has to be that card that exists to take advantage of the Stitcher Supplier, and if it doesn't really exist yet, um, or if it's not good enough, then you're not going to see the prices get really wild on anything. Yeah. I mean, those foils have already uh, been through a couple of different spikes and retraces, um, and the inventory on them is relatively low. And, and it's not the Stitcher Supplier I'd be, I'd be buying. It'd be like, oh, hey, Hogak got banned, but did you realize there was this card or this creature that you know, actually benefits from Stitcher Supplier really well. Well, ben, ben uh, and now that Hogak's banned, we put that in, and oh, there we go. And then suddenly that deck's the new, that card is that new hot thing, because it also combos with Stitcher, Stitcher Supplier. Sure. And Vengevine is probably the mythic to watch there. Like, that's that's the the card that's been banned, unbanned, and shows up here, there, and everywhere in graveyard decks. Never really seems to stick hard. Like People always seem to run Vengevine decks for a while, and then rebuild their decks without it um but it keeps coming back so certainly a mythic to keep your eye on over time i don't think that was ever banned yeah it was banned and got unbanned vengevine yep definitely there was a wmcq promo a long time ago vengevine banned let me search that up on google and see if i'm crazy i'm not saying you're wrong golgari grave troll got unbanned and then rebanned that's true maybe that's what i'm thinking of um, in the meantime, let's go with that. <laughs> in the meantime, no, the right answer. Uh, so, <laughs> is that what it was? Was it Grave Troll you're thinking of? Pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. I was I was uh, talking about Vengevine to be clear, but I was wrong about it having been banned on a bed. Yeah, that was the only part of that I took issue with. Um, another question uh, from Nihilus. What happens to the Throne of Eldraine Collector's Boosters if the set is a dud? And we talked about this a bit last week. And I think we were both, you and I, are pretty much on the same page about this as well. Yeah. We, let's see. We had a bunch of group buys go off in the Discord this weekend for the Pro Traders. One of them was cheap uh, Collector Booster uh, boxes for Throne of Eldraine um, below market anywhere in the U.S. That's cool. But it's definitely a blind investment. We have no idea what's in Throne of Eldraine. And our our main concern with those boxes is that it's a bunch of masterpieces for jank rares and mythics, potentially. Um, some of this, there's only 12 booster, bo- booster packs in these boxes. So as opposed to something like Modern Horizons, where you have 36 packs to make up whatever variants might introduce itself, and it tends to work out. 
a 12 pack booster box where you hit wrong a couple of times could hurt. And I suspect that what that means is that the EV on these is going to range from something like 100 to 400, if I had to guess. If you hit one of the masterpieces that's only available in the collector booster packs and you hit get a two or three of them out of your 12 packs and it's the two or three best cards in the set or top five for the set long term, then that's going to pay off just fine, I think, at the, especially the prices we were getting them at, which is sub $200 US. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think retail is going to be 230 to 250 probably. Um, so I, I don't want to be super deep on these. Like I've, I've put in an order for eight. That's about as far as I want to go until I've seen more of the set. Right. And we, we kind of talked about this a little bit. I think, um, mythic edition two is probably the, the closest touch point, right? As you have uh, the closest analog is you have another product. It was a premium product that just basically went nowhere. Nobody really cared for it. Um, and it sank to, you know, just a little bit over MSRP. Um, and I would anticipate this landing in basically the same position. Now we don't have an MSRP here, but people have to pay their distributors for it. So it'll, and you know, the MSRP is a little, is some number of dollars over the distributor price and they'll probably hang around, I don't know, somewhere between five and 25% over that distributor price. If the set sucks, I guess. Um, the real kicker there is that if the set really is a dud, I don't think that they have much of an opportunity in the way that like mythic edition two does. So mythic edition two is interesting as a potential buy because now that the prices have sunk so low um, that maybe one of those planeswalkers ends up getting really popular or there's an increase in popularity for, for it shows up in a really good modern deck or something, right? There's more of a demand for that card than there was in the past that could really move. It seems like it'll be harder for Throne of Eldraine to do that because it's not full of uh, really cool um, planeswalkers in the way that the mythic edition is. The, if, yeah, Mythic Editions were guaranteed to have proven quality cards. Um, the Collector Booster scenario does not seem, to the best of our knowledge, to include anything other than cards from Throne of Eldraine, which means, <laughs> like I said, you got to strike lucky. Um, part, part of it's going to depend on just how shallow the print run is here. I think we can safely assume it's about the same as we've been seeing with premium product, which means somewhere between 10 and 20,000. Um, they are being distributed overseas, but I think they're only in, in English and Japanese, if I recall correctly. Um, and I think Haruyuya had Japanese boxes up at 270 US. Those are sort of tempting. Um if we could get them, say, closer to the U.S. price, because Japanese masterpieces have never existed before. Uh, actually, is that true? Did Ultimate Masters have Japanese box offers? Uh, I'm sure I don't remember. Huh. I I want to say they did, but I can't remember anyone having talked about one or having seen one sold in quite some time. <laughs> so if they're out there, they're pretty rare. I don't, they tend not to do those stuff in foreign languages, you know, the, the promo cards. It's very rare. The War of the Spark All Arts was like a real departure, right? Japanese box topper, MTG on eBay. Um, no, it 
No, I don't think they exist. I think that yeah. the box toppers in other languages were in English. Yeah, I think that that sounds about right. I don't remember really very many promo cards at all that weren't the Warless Work All Arts being available in different languages. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's the answer to that question. Uh, what else we got? All right, so let's see. This guy, wanted, can, he, can, my dog's asking a question. Can you hear him? Yes, we definitely <laughs> Squeaking can. away on that toy. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to mute that afterwards either. Uh, let's see. This guy wants more detailed info on the EU and U.S. arbitrage. Um, and I guess this was a conversation in the Discord. I don't I don't know exactly what he was referring to with that. But the, you know, the, <laughs> whoops, the takeaway here is that... Uh, I, I, the basics here are pretty are, we've outlined a lot right like if you're in the us or eu you make a connection with somebody on the other side and i mean really if you know i'm in the us and my partner's in the eu so once we kind of work out an agreement for how this is all going to work i just start browsing mkm for or you know i see a card in america and i go hmm i wonder how much this costs in the eu when i go to mkm and i type it in and i go oh look at that it's seven dollars cheaper in europe uh, i'm gonna order some um, and then, you know, I build up a stock with my, my contact and then he eventually puts them all in the mail and sends them back over and whatever money transfer needs to happen exists. So I don't, there's, it's not really a complicated process. It's just a little tricky to set up there, somebody that you know and can trust on the other side. But once you get that ball rolling, there's not a lot of, a lot of fine details to it. Well, compare by comparison to just logging onto eBay and snap buying something and having it at your house in three days, there's it's definitely more complicated, and the denial of immediate satisfaction is certainly present. But if you're playing the mid to long game, then it works out just fine. Um, probably the biggest things to consider are get on top of currency exchange. You want to have a, a wire transfer mm-hmm. account set up with either TransferWise or OFX or um, you know, do a local bank transfer to load up your account on MCM or be using PayPal to, you know, some, what I did initially in Europe was instead of having my own account on MCM, I just found a partner, a pro trader that had an account and I was just sending them money via PayPal and they were buying things for me. But unless you're doing that very, only very occasionally, it can be very annoying for that person. So typically you're going to want to set up your own account, use the address of the person that you are uh, partnered with send all the stuff to them, give them a spreadsheet of what you've been buying so they can check it off as it comes in and make sure that they do a condition check for you. You're going to compensate them in some way, um, either with cash, um, you know, on a per thousand dollars they pass on to you, you're going to give them something, or you're going to do some kind of tit for tat where they're going to send you cards, but they're going to send some of their cards and you're going to sell them for them on your platform of choice alongside your own cards. So, for instance, when I was bringing a lot of masterpieces over, I had a partner or two that were sending me some of their masterpieces and they got sold along the way. And then if we had to, like, balance off who owed who what, we would just do that in a little spreadsheet and keep track of it pretty easily. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the other things to keep in mind is that one of the reasons uh, really good deals are available, for instance, in the the MGG Price Pro Trader group buys, is because there's a high uh, value-added tax that Europeans have to charge each other when they're doing business within the EU. And that tax gets rolled into the list price on MCM. So if there's a $10 card on there, that card is actually something like 860 or something. And then the VAT is added on top of it, which makes it a 10 euro card. So if in our case, we're setting up these group buys with vendors in Europe, 
what we're really doing is allowing them to sell directly to the states where they don't have to charge us that tax, which lets them give us what looks like a sizable discount. But actually, it's not costing them any money. It's just them taking the tax off the top that they would have had to collect and pass on to the EU government anyway. So it's good for them. It's good for us. Good for everybody. And then if you buy up the EU, <laughs> well, the, I mean, it's, it's not business EU business, so it's none of their business. I mean, I'm, I'm all for intelligent taxation, but they certainly shouldn't have a cut of things that are leaving the country. So uh, that's why that scenario tends to work out. There's also the whole thing with EDH cards being less popular in Europe um, and them, you know, Europe tending to take their price cues from what's happening in the U.S. Like a lot of the vendors on MCM are repricing stuff after major price movements in the U.S. And so one of the things you can do is be ahead of them on that, especially since they tend to be, if, if you get results in the late afternoon or early evening, people in Europe might already be asleep. So you might be able to like score some deals before repricing occurs. Um, that's certainly a thing. And then one of the other things that's going on is that all the arbitrage does not necessarily only flow in one direction. Sometimes things are cheaper in the US just on volume than they are in Europe. And often that's going to be like modern competitive staples, for instance. So like Ranger Captain of EOS is currently more expensive in Europe than it is here. It's something like 11 to 13 euro, where here you can still get copy. I just bought a bunch of copies from CK with credit at 9.99. So you know, sometimes our U.S. partners that are working with the EU guys are sending cards back in the other direction as well. And then one of the mm-hmm. other things that the European people can do um, and are doing through ProTrader is uh, place orders. And since they don't want to have to pay that tax by having it shipped to them, they can just have the stuff shipped directly to the U.S. and have their U.S. partner take it on and buy list it for them. So there's a bunch of different ways that that can take place. Um, I'd be fairly confident in saying that the most active social community around all of that is definitely MTG Price Pro Trader because that is a big part of what's going on right now is we have a whole bunch of European members and a bunch of US members and they're all working hand to hand and everybody's playing nicely. Um, but you can also strike out on your own and, and do your own thing. You just got to get your ducks in a row and, you know, try it out. Uh, usually take you a couple of transactions to get a hang the hang of what's going on and then you can make it work for you. Yeah, it's it's really very straightforward once you figure once you get through all the hurdles. And it's not that it's complicated. You just you have to pick the money transfer service you want to use and you have to connect with somebody and you have to get used to using MKM's interface and kind of what it's going to feel like. Just the same with any new process. You know, if you have a job, you've gone through this before. Um, but it, I, I you know, it's not it's not challenging or even really cumbersome. I haven't found too many scenarios where the American cards were worth enough that it was worth shipping them back over to Europe. But that comes with a huge asterisk that I haven't gone looking for them, uh, which is definitely a part of it. I'm guessing that, you know, if it was my goal to find cards cheaper in America than they were in Europe, that'd be that'd be a way to go or I could manage to do it. And I think it tends to be, like you said, the the staples and also some of the collector stuff that yeah. doesn't have a wide release profile because there was I don't remember what it was well, we were talking about. Mythic but it, editions. Like, it wasn't getting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mythic editions. Right. Especially the first one or two that were um, or and even I guess three, but they had no formal or official way to get released in Europe. Essentially. Well, and the bigger problem is that Hasbro, even when Hasbro made them globally available for online purchase, the shipping was ridiculous. And and, and they and they, and they were only available for sale for an hour at like three o'clock in the morning or whatever. Well, and the Europeans get hit with the Vatican on the way in through yeah. customs. So if they have a friend send it to them from the U.S. and they don't fully declare it between you know their discretion, then they can get it cheaper. 
Um, so yeah. a lot of War of the Spark Mythic Editions got flipped in Europe for really solid returns. Like people were scooping up full play sets of the cards and then just throwing them over there and making like plus 100, plus 200 euro. Um, I haven't actually checked to see what those are going for over there. I wonder. The other thing that I did last year was sell a bunch of STCC sets over there. And even though the one this mm-hmm. year isn't that popular, I suspect there will still be an opportunity there because, again, they don't come out there. The STCC sets only came out at San Diego Comic-Con last year and then again at Fan Expo. Fan Expo starts tomorrow here in Toronto, so I should be able to report tomorrow night uh, from the floor as we're setting up whether or not it looks like the Hasbro booth has them. Um, and if they do, uh, it might be possible to execute on that trade again. Oh, that'd be exciting. Um, so I think that's a pretty good, pretty good brush on the arbitrage concept. And, you know, if you, uh, well, I was going to say, if you want to know more, you need to join the discord, but this guy who asked the question is in discord. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, he's got access to the information so, if he wants it. Yeah. One guy asked, asked us to talk about Vegas. I'm not even sure really what to say. Uh, I mean, it's a modern event with Hogox, so nobody cares about that. Um, the, the event has definitely lost some of its appeal to the Magic community. I think you know, I made the went to the first three, the the ones tied with the Modern Masters releases, um, and all of my friends were interested in going every time. It was just like we, you know, we knew Vegas was coming. Uh, and then we would start the group discussion about arranging rooms and all that good stuff. And then uh, the first Vegas, it wasn't linked to a modern masters. There was like no discussion, like nobody even really brought it up. It was just, it was just odd how hard of a shift we went from modern masters three to the next one was just like, nobody, it was even, it wasn't really on any of our radar. Um, I think part of that is disconnecting it from the set releases, uh, so I, I don't know. I, they're, they're, they're just another convention now, right? Like they were really cool before, but now it's like, oh yeah, it's just a smaller version of Origins or Gen Con or Hascon or, or any of the weeby anime cons. Like, I don't know. It's just there every year. It's in Vegas, by the way, is also a lot. Uh, so, you know, for a lot of people, they do not need to do Vegas every year. Uh, and I'm one of them. You did say, I guess, what one of the things that was interesting out of this year is like, I think you're telling me that Command Zone is hosting an event that has something like a, has a thousand signups at this point or something. Yeah, is that right? People were reporting on Twitter this morning that there was like over a thousand people signed up for the Commander event at Vegas, which is a, a strong signifier that, you know, Commander is as important as we've been saying it is um, and that it is capable of commanding, you know, GP sized crowds. Because that's significantly more than some of the competitive, the the constructed GPs have gathered um, earlier this year. Yeah. So I wonder if Wizards will look at this and say, hey, you know, we had 1,500 people show up for this, like, kind of semi-unofficial commander event. And, you know, the main event was only a thousand players more than this. So, and that's without us even pushing commander. So maybe they look and they say, you know, we've got all these kind of GPs throughout the year, the pro, I got, I can't, I don't know what to call this crap anymore. The various competitive magic venues are out there. They just released the reworked information. Maybe they look at, ha- at Vegas and go, well, you know, in the past was tied to our modern p- product releases, but those are kind of gone. We moved away from that model. So let's turn Vegas pivot Vegas because it's such a so so much more it's success in the past is so much more about the social aspect and the big magic gathering and you know nobody even cared about the main event it was about going to Vegas which was the magic event of the year pivot the event towards commander and like this is our big casual you know EDH fun magic event every year and really focus on that maybe they move the commander product releases to that to match that time of year um 
you know, do something to that effect. That would be fun. You know, if they made it a more commander and casual focused event, I think you would probably catch a lot more people than you do with just another modern GP. I've got a really fun event planned to launch at a Vegas GP at some point, but talk about it more in the Discord. <laughs> okay. Um, I, that seems to be about the end of the questions, unless you want to answer, all right, what is the... Uh, what is the life expectancy of paper magic in regards to modern and standard? I'm not sure what that question is asking. I think that people are having misinterpreted Wizards push towards trying to position as an eSport as a, as a move away from paper. And they felt that the kind of like poor information flow and the switching up of how they were handling the pro tour um, was in some way a vote of no confidence in paper magic. And I think those people have it very, very wrong. I saw lots of people arguing similar arguments on Twitter this week. They don't know what they're talking about. Magic is from investment documentation, Hasbro investor documentation. It's a publicly traded company, so the information's out there. You can go research it, and you should if you care about MTG Finance. Um, Magic's doing is better than it has ever done. It is one of the brands, flagship Hasbro brands at this point. One of the reasons is because when Toys R Us collapsed and cut off a bunch of the distribution outlets for Hasbro toy brands, Magic was not a heavily uh, uh, sold item at Toys R Us. You saw a lot of Pokemon there, you saw a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh, but you didn't really see a lot of Magic because it wasn't the right age bracket. Because despite people saying that Magic is for kids, it isn't. Um, It is for 18 plus people. Um, that's the way it's designed and targeted. So that coupled with Magic having a really strong product run for the last couple of years has resulted in them having strong revenue, strong profit. And if you look at what they did with the Pro Tour, yeah, there's lots of dubious questionable things along that path, but they actually put more money into the system overall in terms of everything they're doing to support it. And they've built out digital at the same time. So digital is not about moving away from paper. It's about finding more ways to charge us more money at the same time. There's no planet where Hasbro wants to give up paper magic because then they only get to bill us once for the product. That's not where they want to be. They are in a very unique position as is where they can sell you the physical version and the digital, bill you twice, and no one is ever going to give that up. So no. specific to standard and modern, I don't think standard's going anywhere. That's how they sell new cards. Um, modern is a different story. Modern might collapse under its own weight at some point. Um, yeah. And so historic has already been tabled as the arena version of modern. And they will see how that goes. If it's very popular and arena continues to get more popular and there is therefore latent demand to take that format into paper then they'll run some events for it and see if people show up. And if they do show up and it's popular, then they'll reinforce it. And if simultaneously people are still complaining about the play patterns in modern, um, then they're, you know modern could become the next legacy within the next, say, two to five years. Now, how likely is that to happen? I probably put the odds at 50-50-ish. Like we, we were talking about modern turning into legacy years ago. A couple, at least a couple of years ago, we started talking about that premise. Um, once it became clear that Legacy was in fact being more or less abandoned, that uh, Modern would eventually suffer the same fate because formats get to the point where they just have too many combos built into them. And it's really hard to create fun interactive games unless you kind of 
you bring a very laser specific expertise to the format in terms of banning a few select things, maybe more than a few, and adding some things in the format that help rebalance things. Currently, I think modern is very healthy. Like coming out of the Hogak situation, it's going to be very healthy. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but I, I don't think paper magic is going anywhere at all. I think standard's very safe. And I think modern is on a mid to long term decline. Yeah, yeah, which isn't too far from where we were before. I remember we discussed, God, it, it's hard to place these temporally now, but maybe like a year and a half ago, we talked about how like modern wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. That might have been around the time that Hotter was pushing Frontier. And then it felt like within about six months, the conversation had changed enough that we were like, yeah, we don't know when it's going to happen, but it's it's on the horizon. Um but you know that shouldn't be expect. It shouldn't be a surprise. We've seen, ma- we've seen non-standard magic formats change quite a bit. There was, you know, legacy has changed names, but hasn't actually changed format. But there was extended. Um, there was there were like two versions of extended, right? Like I think they actually changed the way extended worked at least once, possibly twice, and then there was modern. So. And I think for the most part, it's good for magic players and it's good for magic cards for new formats, you know, to kind of semi sunset some formats and introduce new ones because it gives you a chance to play with cards that just got left in the dust because there was just nowhere that they could work. Um, the cards that are, you know, were, were needed more support than they had in standard, but uh, aren't powerful enough to work in these humongous formats like Modern and Legacy. So they're fun and they give everyone a chance to explore new stuff. So I'm all about it. I don't... the And the end of Modern shouldn't be taken as a an indication of a lack of health and magic. It just, you know, sometimes it has to shed one of its various skins and do something different. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like, why would they ever get rid of Paper Magic? They get to sell you the cards twice. Um, and hopefully somebody at Wizards realizes that this is a golden goose and that they shouldn't strangle it because, uh, they are the best paper card game, best paper product, uh, in the market. Um, and you know, I'd hate to see them give up that, that edge. They they just don't have any reason to go there. The, um, I, I think things like brawl are more questionable than historic. Like I think. A, a, a fresher modern has some validity to it. I think a shorter term commander is <laughs> much more of a uh, add-on that it's not clear we need. Like I feel like if people get bored of standard, they can just start playing commander at their FNM because FNMs can sanction whatever they want these days. So I'm not convinced about brawl. I think historic makes sense. Um, to a greater extent and we'll see how it plays out yeah all right i think that is it for this week james where can our listeners find you you guys can find me on twitter at mdg critic as well as via my uh, occasional articles on mdgprice.com you can also find me haunting the mdg price pro trader discord on a regular basis helping our members get max value and make and save money playing magic the gathering all right, and I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write for MTG Price doing the Watchtower series every Monday, uh, as well as doing this lovely podcast. 
I'd like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super, super, super active Discord forum that I guarantee you will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Seriously, folks, we bought like 30 grand worth of cards this weekend. Um, we are busy, busy, busy. All right. And... Uh... Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool and nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering, single sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use a promo code FINANCE5, that's the number five, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of MTG Fast Finance Podcast, episode 182. I've really enjoyed our discussion, Travis. Thank you so much, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Oh, wait. Did we give away our $25 gift certificate? No, but we did pick them out. Get there. Got there? Got there. Got there, hanging out in the MTG Price Pro Trader Discord. You have won $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff, Inc. Go spend big and make sure we continue to get that lovely support from our sponsor. All right. Well, I enjoyed episode 182, and I'm pretty sure I will be here for next week's. Take care, everybody. See you soon.